now to Matthew chapter 6, and I'm going to read again verses 9 through 13, the Lord's Prayer. Jesus says, Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would come and and reveal your glory to us through your word. Lord, you are so holy and majestic and, and glorious. And I pray that we would be able to get a glimpse of that today as we study your word. I pray that you would take this word and and teach us that we would all be able to glean from this. You've promised that your word does not return void, but that it always accomplishes what it is supposed to accomplish. And so I I pray that that will happen today. And I pray that you will uh, teach us from your word. Help me, Father, to deliver this message with clarity. I pray that it will be received with clarity. We love you so much. And we we thank you for what you're going to do. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You may be seated. Last week, you guys remember, we looked at the first word of this prayer, the word our. That Jesus begins this prayer with. And in that little word, we saw a lot about who this prayer is for. He's, He's giving us a model of prayer. And we saw that this is who it's for. He's speaking to His disciples and by implication us and and all followers of Christ. And so when He he uses the word our and when He uses the word our in, in giving us this model, He puts that word sort of on our lips or in our minds as we pray. We should be thinking with this mindset, a, a, a multiple um, multiplication, vast, great, big, lots of people Mindset. That's what we think of, or we should be thinking of when we pray. And he's reminding us who is going to learn from this prayer, who is going to take this prayer and adopt it as a model, who's going to learn from this teaching, and it's going to be all of the people of God as a collected whole, together, the people of God. Those will be those who will be taught from this prayer, who will who will begin to be shaped by this model of prayer, are Christians, kingdom citizens, those who have been born again. That's who he's talking about when he says, Our Father. And when he says, Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven. And we can't forget that. We no in no at no time should we ever be under the impression that we are alone, that we are without love and help and encouragement that nobody is there for us as we as we walk through the Christian life. But we should also never assume that we don't need anybody else. We don't need love. We don't need encouragement. We don't need fellowship. We don't need companionship. Those that shouldn't be the way we think because we're praying to our Father. And when we say our, we have that picture in our mind. We're 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 speaking of the group of or the body of Christ as a whole. And and we saw as we closed that. If we fail to understand that God has redeemed a people, then we and we begin to think solely on an individual respect. That's all about me and my salvation, and we, we're focusing only inward. 
then we will begin to shape our lives and live and act around a theology of a false gospel. We've misunderstood if we don't get all the way to the back of the book and see this people from every tribe and nation and tongue on earth. We have to get to the end. But the biblical gospel, like I said, it teaches us that Jesus came to redeem a people, not just a person. And so we must honor and love His bride, the church, the people like He does. We are compelled by the gospel. If we say that our lives are gospel-centered lives, then that means the gospel pushes us to live and act in a certain way. We know that the gospel says Jesus died for His people, and so we should be compelled to live for His people, for the kingdom. That was last week. We are the ones that that are modeling our prayers after this one. Today, we're going to kind of get more into the prayer itself. And so I want to take just a few minutes and talk about the structure of this prayer. If you notice, through verse 10, there's there's a division after after verse 10. And this is a division that divides the, the focus of God and then... The focus on ourselves. And you can see this is pretty clear in 9. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then verse 11. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Lead us not into temptation. But deliver us from evil. You see that separation. There's a division. We started off talking about God. And then we moved into talking about ourselves. Okay. This is very important to understand when it comes to prayer. We can't get this wrong. We have to understand that when we pray, it's not supposed to be focused on us. It's supposed to be focused on God. God comes first in our prayers. And if you begin to study this and really begin to take this in, you're going to see... How hard it really is to focus on God first. Um, a vending machine, like if I'm going to go, if I have a job and I go in the breaker and there's a vending machine. If I go up to a vending machine, the first thing I'm going to do is look at all the options and I'm thinking within myself, what do I want to eat? Or what do I want to drink? I want a pack of crackers. I want M&M's. What do I want? I'm thinking of myself. And that makes sense. If you're going to a vending machine, but God is not a cosmic vending machine that we only go to when we need something and for the rest of the time he just stays in the break room. That's not the way we're supposed to think about God. And I've been convicted of this as I mean, just in studying this, every time I pray, I get a couple sentences into it. I'm like, ah, I got it wrong again. It's just so hard because even in prayers, I was thinking this morning, this is a prime example. First thing this morning, before I study. The, the, the sermon for today, I'm praying that God would would help, help me seat this word into my intellect so that I can deliver it with clarity, that I'm not just reading, but that I can remember and I'm, I'm speaking things that I actually know rather than just what I've written down. And, and I say, I ask God to seat this message in my emotion so that even though I've gone over it multiple times, I can still deliver it like it's new, like I'm not just reading it now, I've heard this over and over. And even in that prayer... I I caught myself saying, wait a second, you didn't even take time to acknowledge who you're praying to. You said God, but what about God? Take some time and focus on God for a minute. So I had to start over. Because this is what we do when we are, when we go to prayer, we're so used to just, I have a reason that I'm praying. And so I go to God and I get my, my reason first. Dear God, thank you for this food. Because we're getting ready to eat. Or whatever it may be. 
How often do we do we shape our prayers around God first, then get to ourselves? And it's usually not very often because when we pray, we have a reason that we're going to God in prayer. Most of us, if you're like me, you haven't yet formed that lifestyle that's just constantly in prayer. And so there's there's not a time set aside to talk to God and tell Him who He is to you, what He means and how thankful you are for Him being God. We, we, we struggle with this, and I've been convicted of this, because prayer, first and foremost, must be about God. And if you don't have... If you have five minutes to pray, you had better use the first minute to talk about God. If you don't have, if you don't have time to take this time focused on God, you don't have time to pray. We focus on God first. Christian prayer is so much different than this vending machine idea where people, you know, they call out to God in a, in a moment of need, but that's it. Prayer is first and foremost about God and His glory and His honor. And we live that up to Him. That's what we do in prayer. And so Jesus' model of prayer begins with the glory of God. And a focus on the God to whom we've come to pray. There's another way to think of this division that we should notice. That is the difference between adoration and petition. We start off by adoring God. Hallowed be your name. We'll see that in weeks to come. Your kingdom come. These are petitions. We are asking for something, but it's focused on God. We want your name to be hallowed. We want your kingdom to come. Only after we've spent the time in adoration should we move to our personal petitions. If we only go to God for us, we've missed out on what prayer is. So we've got to start with God first. He's not a vending machine. And like I said, we do this unknowingly because we're just, I think even in our hearts, we mean well. When we need something, we know God is our provider. And so we go to Him. But you've got to remember, you're going to God. Take the time. Tell God who He is. Thank Him for His love, His mercy, His grace. Adore Him for a little bit. Then move to yourself. If we relate this kind of back to what we learned last week, but when we get this idea of who Jesus is addressing, the, the hour, His disciples, us, and we understand the universal nature of the church, that it's not just us, but it's us and this church and that church and that church and that church, all around and all around the world, for me, it, it kind of humbles me, to be honest. It's a humbling thing to think, you know, I'm... Studying all the time, I'm preparing, I'm thinking, I'm planning, and all this stuff. And we're just one church among thousands of churches all over the world. That's a humbling thing. And at the same time, we don't come to God like spoiled brats saying, I want this, this, and I want it now. No, we come to God understanding who He is, and that also will humble us. It's not about us as individuals. It's not just me, me, me. It's it's an outward focus. And so when we, we come, we come as members of a body seeking the good of the body. We, we will have petitions and prayers, but we also remember we're a part of something much bigger. And so this humbles us. And Jesus shows us this in what we call the invocation of the prayer. An invocation is, is just addressing who you're talking to. You're, it's like you're calling out to God and addressing who your, your prayer is going to. And then, as you can see, Jesus says, Our Father in heaven. This is who we address our prayers to. As Christians, we pray to God our Father. We see two 
sort of terms that designate who we're talking to. The first one is Father. That's who we're talking to, the Father. In the Trinity, there's the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. When we pray, we're praying to the Father. And then the other is in heaven. That states where He is. He is our Father and He is in heaven. This is pretty simple. That separates Him from all the other fathers that we may have. Now see, this is, this is important. Fathers we know. We all have fathers. So we, we can kind of talk about, we understand the idea of a father, an earthly father. But just to say father, that doesn't specify which father. Some people are under the impression that they can communicate with the dead. And so maybe their father has passed on. So they go to a seance. They sit around a circle holding hands and they speak out loud in a way to communicate with the dead. And they may say, Father, talking to their earthly father. Or maybe, like you see in movies and television, somebody's at this um, this point of great decision and they don't know what to do. And so they go to the graveyard where their father's buried and they sit there and they talk to him. And I really need your guidance here, Dad. And, you know, you're gone now, but I really think you can. Trying to seek some sort of wisdom from beyond the grave to sort of be downloaded into them from their father. And so maybe... They say Father, and so Jesus specifies our Father in heaven. Not earthly fathers. Our Father in heaven. Fathers we know. Heavenly, or heaven, not so much. This idea has, has plagued mankind from the very beginning. What's heaven like? What is it gonna, where are we going to go? What are we going to be like? Everybody wants to know what heaven is going to be like. The word here for heaven is literally the sky. It's also used for the abode of God, where God dwells. God dwells in heaven. None of us have personally experienced heaven where God dwells. We can't sit around and talk about that time we went to heaven. Or tell somebody that's getting ready to go, hey, if you're going to go to heaven, you're going to want to check out such and such. No, we can't do that. Because we've never been to heaven. God, or fathers, we know heaven we don't really know. There are books written by people who said they had a you know, near-death experience and they went to heaven. I think it's crap. But people think that. But we, we, we can't go to heaven. Fathers, we know. Heaven, we don't know. So when he designates God as our Father, he brings Jesus is bringing God really close, intimately close. And then in addressing heaven, he takes God far beyond our knowledge. I mean, we can read scripture, we can read the book of Revelation and Daniel, these pictures of heaven, but it's a lot of it's, you know, it's, it's metaphors and, and, and things like that. It's not really exactly the way it's read. And so it's still like, what's it going to be like? We don't know. We're going to be, you know, we, we don't know what it's actually going to be like. This is beyond our knowledge. So we see the closeness of God and yet the transcendent nature of God. He relates like a father, but... He also transcends all earthly things that we can even imagine. He's not earthly. So it's it's really interesting the way this is is put together. And we're going to take both of these parts, the Father part and the Heaven part, and we're going to unpack them over the next two weeks. And then today, along with the next two weeks, three weeks, we're going to get a good idea. Hopefully we will be able to wrap our minds around who this is that we're praying to. He's our Father. He's in heaven. Hallowed be your name. That's going to be the next three weeks. So we're we're talking to our Father. We're addressing the prayer. God is our Father. If we go back to verse 8, Jesus said, Do not be like them. You guys remember, that's the Gentiles. For your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. We see in that verse that the focus, the reason, the motivation, the The purpose of Christian prayer is centered first and foremost 
around the nature and the character of God Himself. It's not about us. It's about God as our Father. If our God is not the God that is described in Scripture, then our entire doctrine of of prayer will be wrong. Or if we just read parts of Scripture out of context and then from that build a doctrine of prayer, our doctrine is going to be wrong because it's centered around who God is as our Father. We have to understand not only who is praying, the church, the gathered believers, but also to whom we are praying. We get God wrong, we're going to start praying wrong. If God is your vending machine, if God is only there to give you blessings and prosperity and health and wealth, then you're going to pray like, God, I deserve this because of who I am. But if God is a holy God and He's your Father and He loves like a father should love, then your doctrine of prayer is going to be centered around that. He's not this God of of false religions that so many people ascribe to now or even back in Jesus' day. In this time period, there was a, a, a group of philosophy called Epicureanism. And the Epicureans had this idea of God that said he was, this is a strange word, ataraxic. Don't worry about that. What, what it means is that he is perfectly serene and calm all the time. That doesn't sound too bad, but see, in their minds... They decided that if God is involved in the details of this earth, like we are, then He's going to get upset and aggravated and impatient and tired, like we do. But since God is completely serene and calm, He can't be involved in the things that are going on in our world. And so they had this idea of God that said He's completely uninvolved. He can't be a part of our world because if he does, he's going to get aggravated. He's going to, he won't be serene and calm anymore. So God cannot be involved in, in this world. There's another group called the Stoics, which was very similar. And they were a group of philosophical thinkers among the Greeks and the Romans. And they had decided that an essential attribute of God was his indifference. Now, that's not specifically indifference like we know it. In, in Greek... The the idea of their indifference was that God was incapable of feeling anything at all. No emotion. He cannot feel. So in their minds, because humans feel love and hate, joy and sorrow, contentment, anger, all the emotions that we feel, that because we feel those things and we are volatile creatures and and all the problems of the earth are based on the fact that we feel that. We get angry and so we make a rash decision or we get really happy and so we do something silly and all the problems of the world are focused or, or come from the idea that we have these emotions and so God doesn't act like that. God can't be like a human. He's bigger than us and different than us and so God can't experience the emotions that we experience and so God is completely indifferent. He's incapable of feeling any emotions. That's what they thought. He has to be indifferent to everything on the earth. Completely Unemotional. Now, if you think about it, both of those philosophies go back to what we learned about the Gentiles in verse um, 7. They had taken God and made him out to think like a person. Well, if God was down here, you know, he's going to be upset all the time and aggravated because, I mean, we are, right? If God's down here, he gets angry, he's going to do something stupid, so he can't be down here with us experiencing what we're going through. They had made God out to think like a human being. Of course, we know that God doesn't respond. To situations in time like we do. 
You know, he's not jumping around trying to respond to different things. He just does. He knows what's going to happen. He simply acts, and it is. The events and the, the dregs of this world don't affect God like they do us. God's not like that. The Jewish people of this time had a very high view of God. They honored God, but they did not understand God the way Jesus and the New Testament teaches about God. See, the Jews understood that God begat their nation, that God created all things. But if you think about it, in the tradition of the, uh, the priests and the sacrifices in the tabernacle, the average Jew could not experience God on a close personal relationship. He'd just take his goat up there and he was gone. He didn't know God closely. They didn't experience the nearness of God. The Jews wouldn't even say the name of God out loud. A lot of times in the Old Testament when you read the, 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 the word Lord and it's not all caps, it's the word Adonai, which means Lord or Master, but it's not the name of God, Yahweh, because they wouldn't say it. They wouldn't write it. They came up with a different one because they thought His name is too holy to even speak. When they wrote Scripture, they would just leave a blank. I'm not going to say His name. He's too holy. But they didn't know this idea that Jesus speaks of, of God as a father, as we'll see later, Abba, Father, or Papa, or Daddy, Father, this close nearness of God. They didn't understand this idea. See, our God, the God of the Bible, is close. Our God is a father to us. He's not unattached and indifferent to our needs. He's not separated from everything that we go through. He's not the God of deism that came in and created everything and then He's gone no, He's our Father. Think about that. A Father. Fathers love their children with a special love that can only be found between them. My kids don't have to act a certain way to make me love them. Ever. I mean, it just you just love your children. I love my kids with a love that's unconditional simply because... They're mine. They're just, they exist and I love them. I started loving them in the womb. I can't imagine ever looking at them and not loving them because I'm their father. They exist and I love them because fathers love their children. Fathers seek to nurture their children. They want to see them grow physically and mentally. They want to care for their physical needs. So they work to provide food and shelter, warmth in the winter, cool in the summer. This is what fathers do. Fathers want to see their children grow mentally. And so they teach them things. Take time to teach children you know, life lessons so that they can function in society. Fathers teach their children valuable motor skills like working on things, driving a car, flushing the toilet, cleaning up a mess. Changing the oil in the car, catch a fish, all these different things that fathers teach their children because they just want them to be able to function. This is just what fathers do. Fathers protect their children from physical and mental harm. So we, we lock the doors at night when we're in a parking lot. We keep them away from cars. We buckle their seat belts. We teach them to hold on to a handrail when they're walking downstairs to watch where they're going when they're going around a corner and there's a countertop, a corner countertop sticking out. We want to watch their heads because they don't look. The fathers do this because we don't want our children getting hurt. We also keep them from mental harm. So we start from a very early age to teach in them foundational truths that can stick. And that way when they get older, and they're in high school and they're in college and their worldview is attacked, they can go back to what they learned and they say, no, I know that's not right. I've been protected from mental harm. I've got my foundation. My roots are planted. And so they can easily detect 
falsehood. And they can say, oh, that's garbage. I don't care how many PhDs say that. It's garbage because I was taught from an early age these foundational truths. This is how we protect our children from mental harm. Fathers seek the best interest of their children. Now this is usually one that's kind of harder because it involves discipline that is not always fun. We, as fathers, we want to see our children be happy and joyful and have a good time and do things that are fun, make friends. But more than we want those things, we want what's best for them. And so sometimes the things that they want to do are going to bring them harm. They're going to be detrimental to their health, their safety, their they're learning, and so we might have to discipline them. If they break the rules, we have to corral them back in with discipline to get them to make sure that they don't break the same rule again. And I've told Case over and over when I have to spank him for things, I'm saying, listen, if I, I can spank you here and you begin to listen, then someday when something really dangerous is going to happen, maybe I won't have to tell you but once. That's what we have to do because we're fathers, and it's more important that we discipline our children and train them correctly then we just want them to be immediately happy all the time. Fathers are also forgiving of their children. Even in situations where there's disobedience and disrespect, a, a father will try to be merciful as long as possible. Because fathers are tenderhearted and gentle. And, and as much as they can be, they try to be gentle in their teaching before they have to go to discipline. No, fathers aren't aimlessly Hateful and mean toward their children. Fathers delight in their children. They delight in seeing their children flourish and learn and grow and progress. And the fathers, fathers delight in their children just because they're there. Sometimes I look at Case and, and Hannah too, but Case more so because he's, he's growing up and he's just learning. And I look at him and I find myself, I'm just, my heart is just full of joy. Not because he's, he just, he gets just standing there. Just standing still watching TV and I'm just filled with joy because I'm thinking, I helped make that. And he's living and he's breathing and he's, he's not dead yet. He knows how to do things. He's, this is crazy. And it's just so joyful. It's like, man, this is so crazy. Because I delight in my child. And that's how fathers are. All of that is captured in the phrase, our father when we, talk, when we go to God and we talk to Him, we are coming to our Father. And that's a really big deal. The Bible uses many different titles for God. And you can read throughout the Scriptures, God is called El Shaddai, Jehovah El Shaddai, the Lord God Almighty. Mighty over all things, all might and power comes from Him. There's nothing that's out of His control. He has all might, all power. He does whatever He wants and nothing gets in His way or holds Him up or slows Him down or stops Him because He's God Almighty. He's called Jehovah El Elyon, the Most High God. There are other false gods. The Bible says that they're actually demons that people worship that they call gods. False gods, demons. God is the Most High God. He's above all of them. I've said it before, Martin Luther said that the devil is God's devil. He does only what he's allowed to do. And the demons, if you remember in, in one of the Gospels, they address Jesus as son of the most high God. They know who God is. He is the most high and they're all underneath him. He's called, like I said earlier, Adonai, Lord or Master. 
He gives instructions and we listen. We submit to Him because He's the master and we are the slaves. We are obedient. He's Jehovah Nisi, the Lord, our banner. If you think about the Olympics, when these different nations go in and they have their flag of their country and they're saying, we represent this country and we... Here we have 4th of July celebrations and we have American flags everywhere because this represents our country. And the Bible calls our God Jehovah Nisi, the Lord, our banner. This is who we are representing. This is the banner that we're all underneath. And it, it spans generations, it spans cultures and countries. All believer, believers are under this Jehovah Nisi, the Lord, our banner. He's called Jehovah Ra'ah, the Lord, our shepherd. Like a shepherd who guides sheep. You know, sheep, if you, if you learn and know very much about sheep, this is not a very, uh, a very pleasing analogy that we are given in Scripture as the sheep. Because sheep are not very smart. They're dumb. They, they are anxious and they worry. They're very nervous animals. And in Psalm 23, when it says, He makes me to lie down in green pastures. See, sheep are so nervous and anxious a lot of times that they won't lay down. They're too scared to lay down and sleep. So the Lord makes us lie down in green pastures. He's our shepherd who says, I've got this, lay down. He's our shepherd, He guides us. He's Jehovah Rapha, the Lord that heals mental disease, physical disease, any kind of disease. He is a healer. He's Jehovah Shammah, the Lord is there. Like I said, the deists say, well, maybe God created the earth, but then He left. He doesn't have anything to do with us. No, He is Jehovah Shammah. He is there. Me and Christy were riding through Hickory yesterday, and there was a truck that on the back, it said, Jesus is, exclamation point. Like that was the sentence. No blank, no dot, 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 just Jesus is. That's correct. He is. He's not, He, he, he was, and He's going to be, and He is, and there's no... He just is. Because the Lord is there. He's Jehovah Tzidkenu, the Lord our righteousness. When we aren't righteous, we're not worthy to have a relationship with Him. He is that righteousness for us. He's Jehovah Mekadishkim, the Lord who sanctifies you, calls you out, separates you to Himself, makes you His, uses you for His glory. Changes you into what He wants you to be because He sanctifies us. He is El Olam, the everlasting God. He doesn't have a beginning. He doesn't have an end. He just is. There's no end. He's Jehovah Jireh. The Lord will provide all that we need according to His riches and glory. We will never have to want or go without because He provides. He's Jehovah Shalom. The Lord is peace. Adam and Eve had a good relationship with God. There was peace there. God was at peace with them. They were at peace with God and then they sinned. The peace was broken. The rest of Scripture is the story of God getting His people back to peace. And He is the peace. He wants to bring us back to Himself. Reconcile us to Him because He is our peace. He's Jehovah Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts or the Lord of the armies. He's the commander of the armies of heaven and also, by implication, all the armies on the earth that will do anything, anywhere they ever go, any bomb that has ever fired, He is in control and He is Lord of it all. All of those are names used for God in Scripture and they are all proper and they are all right at all times. He's never more 
the God of peace, then He is the Lord of hosts. He's all of them all the time. But when we come to Him in prayer, we get to say our Father. He's all of those things, but He's our Father. I kept This picture came in my head this morning of, of Barack Obama's children. You know, to us, He's president. That's a big deal. But to His kids, He's just, just dad. That's how it is with us. He's all these names When we come to Him in prayer, He is our Father. As we contemplate the grandiose nature of God, His majesty, He's huge. It should fill our hearts with joy to know that, but He's also our Father. The Bible teaches us that God loves us like a father loves his children. The most famous Bible verse in all of Scripture more than likely is tells us that God loved the world so much that He gave His only Son. That whoever believes in Him will not perish, but have everlasting life. That's love that we can't even comprehend. I wouldn't give my son for anybody. He gave His only Son for sinners like me and like you. God teaches us the most valuable truths in the universe through His Word and through His Son, Jesus. Psalm 119, 130 says, The unfolding of your words gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. That is good assurance to me because it means that we, he, He's revealed Himself. He's spoken to us in this Word through the Scriptures. And even though sometimes we read it and it's just so hard to wrap our minds around, we read it and we're like, what does this sentence mean? I can't follow this. But if we will unfold it slowly, lay it out bare, take our time and read it, It gives wisdom to the simple. That's me. We've got to read slow. And it is good for that. Better than even that though. Is that when we study the Bible. We get to know God more. The more we know God. The better we are spiritually. He's taken the best possible steps. To see to it that we grow. Not only physically. But spiritually. And healthy. Because he wants us to. He wants to see his children develop. In faith and knowledge, He protects us using supernatural forces and angels so that He loses none of those who are His. When you can't lose salvation, He holds us. Throughout Psalm 46, we read that God is our refuge and strength. He is a present help in time of trouble. He's the Lord of hosts. It says the God of Jacob is our fortress. It says that even if the earth were to crumble away and melt out from underneath us, God is still there. He still protects us. God seeks our best interests at all times. Even in times when He has to discipline us, He still does it for our best interests. And Hebrews 12 teaches us that that discipline is proof that we are His children. He disciplines those who are His. He has our best interests in mind and so He never hesitates To stop us in our tracks and steer us the right direction. Even when in the moment it might not be the, the most pleasing thing to us. God is also forgiving and merciful toward us as a father. In Exodus 34, 6, we read the Lord, the Lord. A God merciful and gracious. Slow to anger. Abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Keeping steadfast love for thousands. Forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. See, we see that mercy most clearly in the death of Jesus on the cross for sins. Because the verse goes on, but who will by no means clear the guilty. 
is slow to anger and compassionate and kind, but he will by no means just let sin go. We all deserve the cross. We all deserve eternal punishment. But God sent Jesus to die to absorb our punishment. We didn't get what we deserve. That's called mercy. And now we're forgiven of our sins. If we will repent and trust God, trust in Christ and His death in our place, God is tenderhearted towards us as His children. He doesn't browbeat us or treat us with unwarranted severity. He's patient with us and He has been patient with His people from the very beginning of time. In Romans 2, 4 it says His patience or His kindness was in order to lead us to repentance. He doesn't come and scare us into worshiping Him or force us or obligate us into saying, okay, I'll I'll do it, I'll worship you. No, it's His kindness, His patience with us that leads us to repentance. He's always been tenderhearted and patient with us. And lastly, God delights in us as His children. We saw this a few weeks ago. When we are united to Christ by faith, God delights in us just like He does Jesus. So He looks at us with the same delight that He sees, that He has with, or for Jesus, that He has had for Jesus from eternity past. He's not sitting with a furrowed brow waiting on us to sin so He can say, get back in line. Get back. No, He's not doing that. He delights in us. He's patient. He's tender hearted. Our sins are already forgiven by the blood of Jesus. And so now we stand before God as justified because of what Christ has done for us. And therefore God delights in us just like He does Christ. Jeremiah 32.41, speaking of God, or this is God speaking, He says, I rejoice in doing them good. He's speaking of His new covenant people. I rejoice in doing them good. Rejoice. That's emotion. He is happy and delighted. And he celebrates in doing good for us. He's not up there, you know, angry and upset and all the time and, and, and fussy. He rejoices in doing good. So just like a human father who likes to see his son or his children happy, multiplied times of fa- or ten thousand, God rejoices and delights in our good. Because He's our Father. One last thing about fatherhood. And this is fairly, you know, this is fairly easy to see. Is that there's only two ways that you can become a child of a father. You're either born into the family, therefore that is your father. Or you can be adopted into the family and become a child. The truth is, Scripture teaches that none of us were born naturally into God's family. And the Bible in Ephesians 2 says that we are by nature children of wrath. That we are sons of disobedience. That's our lineage. We are of the lineage of Adam. We are sinners. We have that in our nature, in our blood. We're not born children of God. We don't have that option. And so the only other option is for us to be adopted into God's family. Romans 8 says that if we're Christians, speaking to Christians, says you have received the Spirit, capital S, of adoption as sons. So because of the deposit of the Holy Spirit inside of us, we share in the love that God has for His Son. We are adopted into the family and we are there. And so now we can pray our Father 
And not just our Father, but He goes on to say we have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. That's Papa, Father, or in our terms, Daddy, Father. So it's so we are co-heirs with Christ. Now we've all seen the reality shows, the talk shows on TV where they say we're going to do a blood test and find out who the baby's daddy is. And we they go through the test and it's like, here, this is your father. But that, the kids don't just say, oh, Daddy. No, it's just like, okay, so you contributed to the procreation here, but you're not a, you're not a dad. You're not, you're not Papa to me. You might be biologically my father, but you're going to have to work to become Papa. Well, when we are adopted into the family of God, we don't just come become illegitimate sons or slaves that sleep outside. We are co-heirs with Christ. And we can say, Daddy, Father, Papa. This is term of endearment. Papa, Father. We receive the spirit of adoption as sons. Now, earlier, I'm sure that some of you, when I described fathers, earthly fathers, you were thinking, my daddy wasn't like that. That's not how my father was. Maybe your father was absent. Maybe he wasn't around. Maybe he was gone when you were young. And maybe you have never known the love of an earthly father, ever. You, maybe you had an earthly father, but the stuff I described, you're like, mm, that was not my father. He was angry without reason. He did not teach me. He did not take the time to invest in me. Well, Psalm 68.5 says that our God is a father to the fatherless and a protector of widows in his holy habitation. That means his dwelling and the place where he exists the most comfortably is in being the father to the fatherless. So even if you've never experienced an earthly father, you can have an earthly or a heavenly father that far surpasses any earthly father in the standard by which earthly fathers are judged. That's our God. Fathers in here. When I read that stuff, you're like, man, I don't, I don't mess up that. I am not doing that the way I should. You have a heavenly father who is tenderhearted and merciful and forgiving and we can come to him mothers. It's the same thing. There's, we, we fall short of these standards that God sets. But He is forgiving, He is merciful, He's tenderhearted, He's loving, He teaches us because He's our Father. We cannot forget He's our Father. He is intimately close as a Papa, but as we'll see next week, He's also incredibly transcendent to the point where we can't even we can't wrap our minds around it. So let's close in prayer to our Father.